Well, without a doubt, we live and have been living in what Paul referred to in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as times of difficulty, perilous times, hard times, times that are full of trouble. Uh, there's the unrest in the Middle East. Uh, there's the instability of the economy. There are cultural shifts, standards of morality and ethics, views of family life, perspectives on sexuality. They're all morphing at an incredible rate. But even down to the very personal level, I meet people every week that are hurting and confused, full of doubts and primed with questions. Why was my son sexually abused by someone that was supposed to protect him? Why did my husband leave me? He had such a love for Christ when we first got married. Why did I get stuck in traffic and miss the doctor's appointment that I had to make over three months ago? How long will I have to wait to find someone to marry? How long will I feel so physically weak that I can hardly function throughout the day? How long will my child live in open rebellion? People want to know why, and people want to know how long. They don't understand God's character. They, they have, in some cases, unbiblical expectations about life. Circumstances in life have thrown them a curveball. They are disillusioned, trying to make sense out of all that is going on in them and all that is going on around them. Some of you may be familiar with Warren Wearsby. Uh, Wearsby was well-known, a well-known Bible teacher who at one point pastored Chicago's Moody Church and speaking uh, at one point to a group of, of ministry leaders, he made this statement that, that if he could go back and he could change anything about his ministry, he said that he would speak more to troubled hearts. And we need to do that as pastors and as Christians, followers of Christ, we need to do that more regularly, more often. We need to speak. Speak more to troubled hearts. People are doing all kinds of things to deal with the chaos and the confusion. Of course, there are many in the world who want to imagine that in spite of the out-of-control behavior of others, that they are themselves in control of their own destiny in life. Yet these, these kinds of individuals also know that without a perfect and a comprehensive knowledge and a control of their world, that they have to admit that there is some overarching purpose for everything because the only other alternative is fatalism. I suppose that they, they could opt for the view of blind chance. King Solomon said that this is the way that many people think about life when they fail to take into consideration the Lord's ways and His character. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun... The race is not to the swift, the, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. But this isn't at all the perspective that we are supposed to have as Christians. We have answers that are able to settle a troubled heart. We are not fatalists. We are not those that believe that our decisions mean nothing. 
that everything is fixed and that our choices make no impact on the outcome. And as Christians, we don't believe in blind chance. We recognize the folly of gambling on the idea of probability because we know that there's no such thing as chance. We believe that everything is governed by God. You may choose to take a shot at winning, uh, picking the winning number or possibly the winning horse or winning hockey team or uh, winning soccer team, but according to Scripture, God has already fixed the outcome. We know that because the Bible teaches that God has purposed things and declared things and no one can reverse it. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 11, the Lord says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God and henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Uh, the New American Standard says it translates that this way. I act and who can reverse it? In the New Testament, we have Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, a statement about the overall work of God in governing everything by His sovereign will. It says there that in Him we, so Paul speaking of himself and other Christians, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, past tense, we've already realized this, because God has made it so, He says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. There's no way around that statement. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, it's all-inclusive. Everything that exists and everything that occurs does so because of the precise plan and purposes of God. Therefore, by implication, if you are a Christian, you can never be lost. Can God's plan for our safe arrival and glory be altered? No, it can't. Can it be hindered? Absolutely not. Can outside forces in the universe take our salvation away? No. But what about my own sin? I mean, I'm, I'm weak. I, I struggle with sin every day and I often fail. Will my failings and my sins sever me from God's love? Not according to Scripture. And these are some of the questions that Paul is addressing in Romans 8. I want to begin reading. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 22. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, uh, hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience or perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
So this is what Paul says, that, that if we've placed our faith in Christ, if we have been forgiven, if we are no longer under God's wrath, we have been justified, we have been set apart for God, and we have entered into that process of spiritual growth that we often refer to as progressive sanctification. And as Christians, according to verse 25 and many other New Testament passages, we are called as Christians to persevere. We are called to stay steady. We are called to be consistent, to press forward in our Christian lives. But whenever we're called to persevere, we immediately face attention. On the one hand, we know that, that it is the proactive, uh, that, that, that this is the proactive work that God calls His people to do. He calls us to persevere. We know that. But on the other hand, we equally know that in this life and until we get to glory, that we are vulnerable. So the tension comes because of the fact that we are called to stay steady and to not waver, yet we know by personal experience, in fact, we know from our own track record, that without the Lord's moment-by-moment help, without His constant help, we would sink. That we cannot, on our own, in our own strength, by ourselves, moment-by-moment, preserve and uphold our own faith and make it to glory. And this is our concern. Our concern is that, that we are commanded by God to keep striving, and yet we know that we are vulnerable and weak. And this is exactly what Paul says, that you are weak, that you, your perseverance is, is shaky, that you are limited, that sometimes you don't even know what to pray for. Sometimes your prayers are short-sighted. Sometimes you don't recognize your real needs. In some cases, you don't even know how to express what you need. So what does the Spirit of God do for you? What Paul says is he protects you. He strengthens your perseverance. He is working within you, helping you with your particular burdens and with your specific weaknesses. He is pleading before God with you and for you. He knows you and he knows the will of God and he's translating your burdens and struggles to to God so that it comes out at the throne of grace as something that God loves and that God wants for your life, enabling you to take another step of faith. In fact, every member of the Trinity is involved in our perseverance. The Father knows our hearts and wants to get us to glory and has predestined to get us there. The Son, who is our advocate, having purchased our salvation so that God's judgment cannot come against us, He is interceding for us. And the Spirit is interceding, bridging the gap of our daily weakness in the providential outworkings of God to get us to glory. Verse 26, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the Spirit intercedes for us with divine purposes that are beyond human ability. Because I don't have the ability to get there on my own. But the Spirit's intercession works 
in the divine purpose to get me there. And this brings us to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. One of the most beloved verses in the Bible, one of the most sweeping promises in the Word of God, although sadly, one that is most likely not to be believed. And in this verse, Paul describes for us what we might refer to or or call the three, three aspects of eternal security. Three aspects of eternal security. And the first one is simply this, the certainty of security. The certainty of security. Now, it's important to get the sort of the flow of thought here. You think about, uh, think back to what Paul has already taught us and reminded us in this, in the previous verses in this chapter. He says that if we are believers, we have the Spirit dwelling within us. And because we have the Spirit within us, we have the power to kill sinful desires on a daily basis. We also have the inner witness of the Spirit that we have been adopted into God's family. And because of that, we are always drawn back into intimate fellowship. We always have a longing in our hearts that is Spirit-produced to go back and to be under the, the provision and the protection of God. And we have the Spirit who helps to overcome and our severely limited prayer life when we go to God for help. This is how God is working all things together for our good to get us to glory. This is how He does it. So if, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you, were, if you were to be lost, if you were to lose your salvation... The Father would have to no longer want it as a part of His predestined plan. If if you were to lose your salvation, the Son would have to no longer go before God as your advocate. He would have to say nothing on your behalf. He would have to stop interceding. And the Spirit would have to stop His day-to-day, moment-by-moment intercessory work in the providence of God through all of life's circumstances. All of that would have to cease. And that is not going to happen. We should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God Himself, through His Spirit, is causing every part of our lives to become the perfect, custom-made path for our spiritual best both now and on our way to glory. Everything that happens to you is decreed by God and carried out by Him. This is His providential work. This is His preserving work. It is secure. It is certain. It, it, is, it cannot be altered. It cannot be rescinded. It cannot be hindered. It, it cannot be, be stolen or stopped. What does Paul say? And we know. We know it. Christians know this. We cannot be in the dark about this. How this work begins. How this process of our path to glory is carried out. Or the ultimate outcome. 
We know this to be true. We know this with objective certainty. That God has been at work, that God is at work, that God will be at work because He has ordained all of it. This is where Paul takes us in verse 28. To explain one of the most supernatural, steadying doctrines in all of Scripture. Into deep waters of truth that not only comfort us, but in some ways cause us to tremble. Because they are so profound and we are so insignificant and finite. And this is what Paul tells us. This is what he shows us. That God is carrying out divine purposes that were in his heart and they cannot be stopped. That from start to finish, there is an eternal chain of redemption. A chain of redemption that leads sinners to glory in Christ and it cannot be broken. This is what we know. Now, there are a lot of things that we don't know. We've already seen in verse 26 that sometimes we don't know what to pray for. And we clearly don't understand what God is doing in every facet of every situation in our lives. I mean, even Paul himself confessed in 2 Corinthians that there were many times when he was, dis- he was perplexed about what was going on in his life. In detail. God's hand is not always apparent. His ways are not always visible. But we definitely know this. That there is a plan. A plan that is being worked out down to the smallest detail by a faithful God whose inter-Trinitarian will cannot be altered. This is the certainty of security. We know Next, Paul describes the extent of security, the extent of this security. Notice what Paul says, the phrase there in the middle of verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is a very concise way of describing what we refer to in theology as providence or the doctrine of divine concurrence, human divine concurrence. That concurrently with the natural order of things in life as they are working out, God is sovereignly working out His ultimate will and what He has ordained to occur. One definition is this of providence. Providence is the continuous activity of God in His creation by which He preserves and governs all things, thereby certainly bringing about the fulfillment of His wise plan. And we could add to this that the doctrine of God's providence affirms His absolute lordship. It affirms His absolute lordship over His creation. And it also confirms the dependence of all of creation on its creator. Some people want to believe that they are free. that They want to believe that they are free in the sense that they are autonomous... Uh, from the Creator, uh, this simply cannot be. It, it's, not, it's not possible. It, it's not possible for any creature 
whose existence is bound up in God's self-existence to be made in such a way that the the creation or the creature itself is now self-existent. It's it's an impossibility. If 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 God is self-existent, then nothing that He creates can ever be that. Nothing else can ever be self-existent and autonomous from Him. And the doctrine of God's providence confirms this reality because it says that He is preserving and governing His creation. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, in him we exist. There's no way for us to exist without being in Him. You would not be here if God did not bring you into existence and did not sustain that existence. I mean, this is, this is profound. This is, this is deep. And, and men and women have, have struggled through the centuries to describe God's providence in a concise way. I mean, to to, to try to pull it together in a concise fashion because of its depth. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, written in 1646, it states this, that God, the creator, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. Not done according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, not done, to to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And that's only one of seven sections under the heading of providence. So how does Paul sum it up in Romans 8? It's amazing. Such a concise statement. All things work together for good for God's own. It's basically what Paul's saying. All things work together for good for God's own. The New American Standard translates this verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And the Scriptures relentlessly declare this to be true, that not only did God create all things out of nothing, but that He continuously works to preserve those things. In fact, in Job 34, verse 14, it's very sobering. Elihu there, speaking of God's providence, said this, If he, if God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, if God were to take back and gather to himself his own spirit and breath, verse 15, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. 
Nehemiah 9, 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. The New Testament truth about Christ says this very thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. The language of providence in the Bible clearly indicates that everything is continually kept enduring by God. Hebrews 1.4 says this concerning Christ, that He is upholding the universe by the word of His power. Now, what does all this mean as far as our salvation is concerned? Because that's salvation, that's really the context of Romans 8.28. It means, first, that God has thought of everything. God has thought of everything, including any threat that might obstruct or thwart our way to glory. He has not overlooked anything. He has not been distracted with what's going on with the V8 scandal. He is not distracted by what's going on in Iraq. He's not distracted by what's going on with Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. He is fully aware of anything and everything that could jeopardize your faith. He's aware of it. Anything that could endanger our spiritual walk. He has thought of every contingency. And he has worked, worked them all out. He sustains us through every situation and in every detail. This verse also implies that God has the power to do good. He has the power to do good. In other words, the only way that all things could work together for our good would be if God himself had the power to guarantee that result. And he does. God has the ability to do good. And it's not just good, but it's good that is bound up with his holiness. This means that it has to be the best and the finest good that could ever be. And not only has God thought of everything, and not only does He have the power to do good, but He is directing all things. He's directing all things. This is the doctrine of human divine concurrence. Everything that you do is a choice that you make. Everything you do is a choice that you make. You make it according to your nature. You make it according to the moral universe that you live in. You make it according to the reasonable choices that you have available to you. You operate as a free moral agent in this universe. But it's also true that your freedom to choose those things has to do with how God has created you as a moral being. And you do choose according to your nature, given the life circumstances that you're in. You're not a robot. You do get up every day and make hundreds of decisions, maybe thousands of decisions every day. And yet, this verse says that God is direct, directly causing all of your choices by His ordination and His sovereignty to work, to, work according to the good that He is going to produce 
for your ultimate arrival in glory. He is directing it all. I mean, when you fall down the steps, you don't say, I'm glad that's over. You don't do that. You, you learn from it. You decide to be more careful next time, hopefully. You make decisions every day. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that God is directing it. All of it. God directs those things that are inanimate. Job 37, verse 9, From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his, hand, for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. He directs the animal world. Matthew ten twenty nine. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? He directs every nation, the boundaries of those nations, the longevity of those nations, the influence of every civilization. I love what Jerry Bridges says in his book, Trusting God. He says, nothing is too large or small to escape God's governing hand. The spider building its web in the corner and Napoleon marching his army across Europe are both under God's control. He directs every human affair, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism in 1576, there's a, a series of questions. Question number 27 is this. What do you understand by the providence of God? The answer, God's providence is his might, almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things. Your birth, your life, your food, your clothes, your talents, your economic status, your position, your favor or lack of favor with other people, your race, your government leaders, and yes, your eternal salvation. All of these things are under God's control. Every day, human beings as free moral agents make choices, and yes, they have moral implications. And yet somehow behind them all is this providential hand of the Lord working concurrently through all of those things to bring about His unchanging and ultimate purpose. Somebody might say, well, I could embrace that if it weren't for so much evil in the world. Whether it's natural evil, evil those things that just are, are happen every day because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world because we live between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19. Just that chaotic, chaotic uh, aspect of our universe that brings so much suffering on mankind. Or maybe it's moral evil, where human beings in their corrupt state perpetrate evil on others. 
You may be thinking, I could believe that all things work together for good except for the fact that there is so much bad. Well, when it comes to dealing with what is going on in our world, we need to understand several truths. First, we need to understand that God is good by nature, not evil. He is good by nature, not evil. So while God may govern and preserve and work through and concurrently with and overpower both natural and moral evil, evil does not emanate from Him. Only good emanates from Him. God is only good by nature. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there's, there is no darkness at all. Psalm 5, 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So even though evil is permitted and governed and directed by Him, it cannot emanate from Him. In other words, though God controls both good and evil, He does not approve of evil, and He is not tainted by it. In fact, He hates evil. He's opposed to it with a holy disdain. He is morally pure and perfectly good. Second, we must understand that God uses evil for His glory and the good of His children. He does use evil for His own glory and for the good of His children. How does all of that fit together? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us how it fits together. All I know is that God is good, not evil. You know what the Bible consistently tells us? Man is sinful. And God is meticulously sovereign. And Scripture doesn't blush for even a moment when it claims that God exerts sovereign control over all things, including all evil. Third, we need to understand that we must never view evil as something good. We must never view evil as something good. Again, the Bible is clear. God causes all things, including evil, to work together for good, and He overpowers evil in its ability to thwart our salvation and uses it in our favor and even uses it to get us to glory. But it, it in and of itself is evil. Evil and the suffering that comes from it are the enemy of God. They are not morally good at all. And they should not be rejoiced over just because God promises to use them for our good. We should rejoice in God's promise, but never rejoice over evil. Pain and affliction and evil and death are the results of sin, and they are the enemies of Christ. Evil is evil. It is bad, and it will always be bad. Joseph in the Old Testament understood this. You may remember the story recorded for us in Genesis, beginning there in chapter 37. A story that provides really for us a great paradigm 
for our approach to situations, especially where others in our lives transgress God's moral laws, precepts, and we suffer as a consequence of it. And the thumbnail sketches of Joseph's life is simply this, that his older brothers were jealous of him, they, they, just, they despised him, they intended to kill him, but instead beat him, sold him into slavery, told his father that he was dead. Joseph in, ended up in Egypt, completely cut off from everything that was familiar to him. He was in a wicked culture. He started to rise to influence in the palace when his reputation was slandered by Mrs. Potiphar. And he was only doing what was right. He went to prison for 12 years. And after his release, he eventually rose to a place of prominence and had the opportunity at one point to dole out a right and a just punishment upon the wicked intentions of his own family. And you remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verse 7. He said this, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God sent me here. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He went on in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The same word in the Hebrew. Meant. You meant it for evil? God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In other words, you you intended from your evil desires to do evil to me. And God permitted, permitted it. And God directed it because he was permitting and directing with the intention to bring about salvation. His redemptive purposes. And God was realizing His intention at every point. Joseph knew what Romans 8.28 would later teach. That as believers, we have the promise that God who lives in us is using what is inherently bad to carry out a good and holy and righteous end that will totally overrule and overpower the evil that He is directing and permitting. All things work together for good. Including the sufferings that Paul mentions in Romans 8, 17. Including the groaning of verse 23. Including the sins that others have committed. Including the assaults of Satan himself. And even our own sinful failures. John Owen said this, quote, Nothing including our crass errors is beyond the overriding ministry of divine providence. End quote. This is what Paul is getting at in this section. The Spirit of God is interceding in your prayer life through your weaknesses, and I want you to know that this is the providential, preserving work of God as He causes everything in your life to work together for your good, the good of His beloved that are on their way to glory. It's guaranteed. It cannot be lost. It is an eternal chain that cannot be broken. Well, one more thing that we must understand, we need to understand that this promise in verse 28 is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. 
And this brings us to the final aspect, the recipients of security. The recipients of security. The only qualification in this incredible promise has to do with the recipients. Paul is not writing here about the general public. And this is not a promise that all things work together for the good of all people. So how do we know who who is in and who is out? Well, Paul, Paul gives two descriptors. He says, those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, Christians. From a human perspective, Christians are those who love God. One of the most obvious signs of saving faith is a love for God. True salvation undeniably produces lovers of God. Because, as Paul writes in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul said this, For the love of Christ controls us. In Ephesians 6.24, Paul refers to believers as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Those who love God and therefore obey Him and love the things that He loves. So that's sort of the human vantage point. From a human perspective, Christians are those who love God. From from God's perspective, Christians are those who are called according to His purpose. Those who have been called by God into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Those in whom the Spirit of God has performed His work. Convincing a person of his or her own sin and their misery enlightening their minds to the knowledge of Christ, renewing their hearts and their wills, persuading and enabling them to embrace Jesus who is freely offered in the gospel. Those who have experienced a sovereign, irresistible call from the Lord, a calling that has brought them out of darkness, as Peter says, into His marvelous light. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that if you are not a believer, this promise is not for you. You cannot use this promise as some kind of magic wand to provide yourself with assurance that everything in your life will turn out fine in the end. In fact, should you, for example, die in your state of unbelief, providence has not been working for your good. But if you are a Christian, you can be confident, Paul says. Confident that God's providence is working out in your life and the lives of others who manifest a transformed heart and the grace of God in salvation. In in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the very next question, question 28 says this, What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. God is good, and He does good 
all of the time. God never gets irritable and edgy. He ne- he's never fatigued. He's never blue or depressed or stressed out. God is infinitely energetic with absolutely unbounded and unending enthusiasm for the fulfillment of His promises. This is our God who delights in the welfare of His children. Well, today is Father's Day. Dads, this is one... One one of the greatest truths that you could ever pass on to your children and to your family. That there is only one totally secure place to be. And that is in the providential care of our Heavenly Father. Clothed in the righteousness of His Son. And indwelt by His interceding and protecting Holy Spirit. Romans 8.28 is a massive promise. A promise that is more solid. A promise that is more stable than Mount Everest. John Piper in Future Grace writes, Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside Romans 8.28... All is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of God's all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and pornography and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. There are cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. But once you walk through the door of love into this massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom, you simply cannot be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power. In your life. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we are thankful for the encouragement of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the many ways in which you strengthen us by it and by your spirit. And how, how much, Lord, you sustain uh, not only our very existence, but if we are believers, you, you sustain our faith and will sustain it and preserve it and protect it by your Spirit according to your providence until we see you face to face. 
For those of us, Lord, who are believers, believers, we have so many reasons to be confident that you are in control of every detail of our lives. I pray that we would rest in and trust in and find refuge more consistently in this great promise. And Lord, for those who may be in our service today that are not Christians, they're not believers, Lord, I pray that the promise of Romans 8.28 would serve as a motivation for them to give their lives to you, to repent of their idolatry and their selfishness and their pride, their stubbornness, that they would trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. For you warn in Romans 2 that because of the stubbornness and unrepentant hearts of unbelieving men that they are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And that, Lord, for for anyone here who's not trusting in Christ, their experiences do not and will not turn for good. They will turn for wrath. So, Lord, may they cry out to you in their hearts and trust you today. Would you do all of these things, Lord, by your merciful hand? We praise you and we honor you in Christ's name. Amen.